Good morning, church. So good to worship God together. So good to see what, what Jesus is doing in the lives of the next generation and our kids. Praise God for his grace. We're going to study God's word together, so I hope you got one of these and you can open it up to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 5, and while you're turning there, any guests who are with us, it's, uh, it's our joy to have you. We're delighted that you'd spend this morning with us as we think about our Savior and look at His Word together. We've been walking through various passages to think about the, the advent, the arrival of Jesus in Bethlehem, and also the implications of His second advent, His return, and that brings us to Revelation 5. Uh, before we read the text, I hope that you uh, are planning on joining us if you're free this Christmas Eve. We've got a four o'clock gathering and a six o'clock gathering, so pick one of those. We'd be delighted to have you as we look at God's Word. We remember the story of Jesus together. We'll read the Christmas story. We'll sing Christmas carols. It'll just be a, a sweet, simple, wonderful, uh, Christ-centered celebration. And uh, speaking of Christ-centered, it doesn't get much more Christ-centered than Revelation chapter 5. So if you would follow along with me, I'm going to read beginning in verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides sealed with seven seals. I also saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even to look in it. So John says, I wept and wept because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or even to look in it. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Look, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David. So you know Jesus comes through the line of King David in the Old Testament. The root of David has conquered so that he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw one like a slaughtered lamb standing in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes that represents his his power and his vision, his sight, his omniscience and his omnipotence. His seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. He, He went and took the scroll out of the right hand of the one seated on the throne. When he took the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp of golden bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slaughtered and you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation You made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and also of the living creatures and of the elders. Their number was countless thousands plus thousands of thousands. 
And they said with a loud voice, Worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, on the sea, and everything in them say, blessing and honor and glory and power be to the one seated on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Do you ever feel wonder? A a, a childlike sense of of wonder. You know, it's so fun to see the world through the eyes of, of children. So if you take a child to some place where you've been but they haven't been before and you sort of watch them watch the thing and you just see this wide-eyed stare, right? Their jaws drop open, like literally they, their mouths will hang open. They're, they're, they're not concealing that wonder. It's so real, it's so visceral, it's so genuine and authentic. My, um, I, I remember going to, to Baskin Robbins as a kid and this, is, um, this was a big deal because it was before Bluebell pretty much loaded your fridge with all the great flavors. This was pre-Bluebell. I mean, the craziest thing at that time for my own house was when we got Neapolitan, right? That was like three flavors in one ice cream. It was just, you know, just unbelievable to me. And we walk into Baskin Robbins and you just, you know, children, you just pull up to that glass and you're just looking down into heaven. I mean, it's just like all these options, all this, these glorious flavors. It was the first time I'd ever heard of Jamocha almond fudge. It was the first time I'd ever heard of mint chocolate chip ice cream, right? Just, just mind explodes. I remember um, as a kid growing up in New Orleans, there was a a famous and wealthy business owner. He was the founder of Popeyes, the founder of Copeland's. His name was Al Copeland, and he's known all throughout the city. And people in the city all knew where Al Copeland lived because we would all drive out to his house. Thousands of people from the city would drive out to Al Copeland's house, 5001 False Drive. They would drive to his house and look at Christmas time because he had this light show that was utterly dazzling. And I remember my dad, as early as I can go back in my life, I remember dad saying, load up, and we'd all pile into the station wagon, and we'd drive over to Fulce Drive, and we'd park the car, and we'd get out. And again, just thousands of people from all over the city to see this. And I just couldn't get over it. I I couldn't find a picture that would do it justice, so I think we've got another one as well. Right, so that's, that's Al Copeland's house, and we'd get out of the car, and I'd just stand there and just take it in. Wide-eyed wonder, couldn't believe, 250,000 lights, and this is in the 80s, some of them were robotic. I mean, some of the legs of those reindeer moved in the 1980s. That was unbelievable back then, and so I'm just couldn't get over this awesome sight. I was so struck by it, here I am talking to you about it, 40 years later. I'm looking up pictures this week online to find that. It's like, yeah, that's what I saw. I can still see it through my six-year-old or five-year-old eyes. That's what wonder does, though. It's contagious. You have to share it, right? And when the Holy Spirit wires the glory of Jesus in this text up to our hearts as believers, what happens next is worship. (laughs) And what happens after that is mission. So worship 
drives mission and mission results in worship. These two dance together all throughout the New Testament, the Old Testament as well. So what do we see and hear in this passage in Revelation chapter 5? I think we see three realities that motivate us to worship in mission. Three realities that motivate us to live for the glory of Christ and proclaim the glory and the gospel of Christ among all the nations. The first picture is this, a sovereign God. A sovereign God. This has always been true and it's equally true this morning and it's gloriously, wonderfully true. I hope you feel this truth in your heart. Our God is a sovereign God. Our God reigns. He reigns over all. This is a truth that sustains believers in trials. This is a truth that emboldens believers for witness in the world. And those are precisely the settings into which the truth of the sovereignty of God emerges in Scripture. It comes to God's beleaguered people, and it comes and emboldens them, and it sustains them in trials. So that no wonder that you find the truth of God's sovereignty in books like Daniel, and Ezekiel, when the people are living in exile and they're hopeless and despairing, and in comes this truth of the sovereignty of God. In the book of Isaiah, and there are prophecies about Babylon coming in and bringing wreckage and ruin to Jerusalem, and he says, comfort my people and remind them of who I am and what I, what I can do. Books like the Psalms are filled with the sovereignty of God. Why? Because the Psalms are filled with cries of lament and agony and weakness and pain and what do we need in our weakness and pain? We need a God who's big, who's glorious, who's there, who's present and powerful. Books like the New Testament book of Acts, where right after the apostles get beaten half to death and, and they're, they're released, and what does the church do? They gather together and they pray, and what are the first words in their prayer? Sovereign Lord maker of heaven and earth and sea and everything in them, and then they say, embolden us for witness. They are relying for the boldness of their proclamation of the gospel. They are looking to the sovereignty of God. Books like Romans, we're right there in chapter eight, in chapter nine and 10 and 11, right in the context where in chapter eight, the, the people, the congregation, the believers feel like sheep who are going to the slaughter. And where many are asking in chapter nine, has God's promise to his covenant people failed? What truth comes in to buttress the people of God and hold them fast, the truth of the sovereignty of God? And here in our text, right there in verse one, look at it. Then I saw in the right hand, God's right hand is legendary, his sovereign right hand, in the right hand of the one seated on the throne, there's another image of sovereignty, a scroll with writing on both sides sealed with seven seals. So this scroll, you keep reading the book of Revelation, this scroll contains all of God's purposes for the future, his purposes for human history, including the final salvation of his people, the final overthrow of evil and Satan, the consummation of his kingdom of righteousness, peace, and joy. And this first verse tells us, essentially, he's got the whole world in his hands. Right, that old spiritual that was written back in 1927, he's got the wind and the waves in his hand. He's got the tiny little babies. He's got you and me, brother, you and me, sister. He's got the whole world in the palm of his hands. That right hand holds the scroll of the future of the world. 
In other words, the destiny of all peoples, of all nations, of kings, and all kingdoms is in the right hand of the sovereign, almighty God. (laughs) That is glorious news, that our God is a sovereign God. Look at it in scripture. I'm gonna pull up a couple of texts for you. Psalm 135, verse six. The Lord does whatever he pleases in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the depths. So pretty much everywhere, he does whatever he wants. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all, not some, all of my purpose. Daniel 4.35. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Nobody can throw God in the dock and put him on trial. He's in charge. He's the potter. We're the clay. Can the clay say to the potter, why have you formed me in this way? That's this truth of the sovereignty of God shot through the Bible. Second Chronicles chapter 20, verse 6, O Lord. I love this prayer. God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand, there's that right hand, are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. Believer, take confidence in the truth of the sovereignty of our God. Think about it. How much worry and anxiety in our lives is owing to the fact that we have a small view of God and a comparatively big view of ourselves? Right? We've got this thing exactly backwards, which is why so often when God comes to his people, he's resizing the world for them. He's saying, hold hold on, you got me like this, and you got you like this. You got Egypt like this, and you got me like this. He's resizing their world. I love what um, the late pastor J. Vernon McGee said. He was uh, trying to help people accurately size ourselves when he said this. This is God's universe and God does things his way. You may have a better way, but you don't have a universe. (laughs) Ed Welch's excellent book, it addresses the topics of peer pressure and codependency and the fear of man. The name of the book is wonderful. It's called this, when people are big and God is small. And even the font on the front of the cover of the book is people in all caps, big, and then underneath a magnifying glass, and God is small. (laughs) J.I. Packer said, most of us are miniature Christians because we serve a miniature God. It's as, though he's, it's as though we're looking through the telescope from the wrong end. Friends, God is not small. We serve a big, glorious, capable, competent, sovereign. He is over all. He knows all. He can do all. There is nothing that's too difficult 
for him. God is not wrestling Satan for the steering wheel of the world. They're not in a, sort of in a slap fight in the front of the car, and he's trying to get control, and you know, Satan keeps steering it this way, and he's steering. God is never in heaven wringing his hands wondering, how am I going to bring any good out of this? How am I going to make this right? He doesn't wring his hands. He's never done that in the history of his eternal existence. Our, you know, our culture uh, isn't warm and fuzzy about the sovereignty of God. His love, yes, all day. Mercy, love it, bring more of it, it's wonderful. The sovereignty of God is not something we, we warm up to, especially in our culture. Our culture, deep in the history of, of Americana, our, is language like, don't tread on me. We serve no sovereign here, right? This is deep in our roots of our history in this country. A sovereign judge, no thanks. Several years ago, I came across an article it was uh, announcing a new sort of holiday that began 10 years ago, and the article began this way, quote, ready for a day to honor blasphemy? According to press reports, September 30th, 2009, is set as the observance of the first ever International Blasphemy Day. It goes on to talk about one of the exhibits that was going to be at the very first International Blasphemy Day, quote, you've never seen Jesus like this before, dripping red nail polish around the nails in his feet and hands, an irreverent riff on the crucifixion wounds, the provocative title of the painting, Jesus Does His Nails. Quote, among other things, they plan a blasphemy contest in which participants are invited to submit phrases, poems, or statements that would be or have been considered blasphemous. Winners are to receive a t-shirt and a mug. Friends, one day, everyone on this planet will meet the sovereign God. No one will heckle. There will be zero wisecracks, Bill Maher's mouth will be closed, and others like him who speak out and cast aspersions into heaven, nobody will be too busy to notice, everyone will see him whom they have pierced, he will be utterly unignorable, he will tear through the eastern sky, everything will stop, and the whole world will see him standing there in all of his glory and holiness. The late, great Charles Spurgeon speaks of the difference between the first arrival of Jesus and his second advent. He will be the same, yet oh, how changed. Where now the carpenter's smock, royalty hath now assumed its purple. Where now the toil-worn feet that needed to be washed, they are sandaled with light. Where now the cry, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but I, the Son of Man, have no place to lay my head. Heaven is his throne, earth is his footstool. Ah, who would think to recognize in the weary man full of woes the King eternal, immortal, invisible? He is the same, but yet how changed. You that despised him, will you despise him now? Our God 
is sovereign. He is exalted in the heavens. He charts the course of human history. He raises up kings and brings them down. He, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord like the rivers of water. He turns it wherever he wants to. He calls the stars out by name. Not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from his awareness. He counts the hairs on all of our heads. He commands the winds and the rain, the lightning and the hail. This is your God. This is your king, your maker. He is the sovereign over all the earth. We don't trifle with him. He's glorious in holiness. We deal with him on his terms or we perish. Those are the terms, right? But but listen, there's good news here. And the good news is this. This all-powerful, almighty sovereign gives grace to the humble. He opposes the proud. That's bad news because we are proud. But he gives grace to the humble. Look, God's favorite thing isn't judgment. Martin Luther said that's what he does with his left hand. It's his alien work, his strange work. His favorite thing to do is to save, to rescue, to redeem. And he rescues throughout Scripture. You look at Jesus. Who's he running to? He's running to the weak. He's running to the poor and the powerless and the vulnerable. He's running to those who are failing and helpless. Look, if you want to be saved this morning and you feel too weak to extend the hand of faith, I'm telling you, God will find you. I love what one of the Puritans said. I can't remember which one. But he said, don't think that because you can't reach God with your short stump that he cannot reach you with his long arm. And he went on to say, his arm is long and yea, none knows how long. The sovereignty of God at the end of the day is only terrifying to those who insist on self-rule. To the to the proud. If you run to Christ and you run to him, the one savior whom God has sent, who who lived a perfect life, who died on the cross as a substitute for our sins, who rose again in triumph. If you run to that one savior, the sovereignty of God suddenly becomes the best, sweetest news in the whole world. It becomes a warm blanket around your shivering soul. And that is what the sovereignty of God does to God's people. All throughout the scriptures, they're wrapping themselves in the blanket of, he's got me. He's got me. I trust him. He's powerful. He loves me. He's for me. He's good. And he's in control. There's tension, though, in our passage. Because right after we see the right hand of this sovereign God, the next sound that we hear is the sound of John the Apostle weeping uncontrollably. He uses that word, I wept and wept. It's a picture of the sadness and despair of a world that's hopeless until Christ appears. So that's the next truth, a sad world. A sad world. John is weeping in verse three because those words, no one in heaven, earth, or under the earth can open the scroll. Again, remember what the scroll is. That the, if the contents of that scroll announce, and don't just announce, but actually throw into motion the last sequence, a new chapter for God's people marked by righteousness, peace, and joy in the forever kingdom of God, John weeps because, but nobody can open the scroll. The scroll is full of awesomeness, but no one can break those seven seals. It is perfectly sealed shut. It It is the sword stuck in the stone, and no one can lift it out. So it does us no good. 
In effect, because no one in heaven, as the text says, no one in heaven or earth or under the earth can lift that thing, can break the seals. And so John weeps. The Bible is full of weeping. The Bible, in one sense, you could call it a book of sorrows. Jesus was called a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. You you think about biblical characters. Hannah weeps because she's childless. Tamar weeps because she's violated and no one comes to her defense. Martha weeps because her brother's dead. Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. Peter weeps over his failure, right? Ever since Genesis chapter 3, the world has been weeping, written on the walls of creation and the walls of your own life are two words, sin and suffering. Death, misery, pain, right? There seems to be no end to sin and suffering, so we still weep. It's not just for biblical times. We still weep. I read an article this week about the situation in Venezuela. It begins with the story of an unemployed single mom who sees the escalation in prices because of the economic crash, and she's saying, I'm not going to be able to feed. I have four children. I cannot feed my children. And the the quote at the top of the article was this, I feel like my heart is breaking. A world still weeping. Yemen is burning, right? 91,000 people killed since 2015. Some experts are calling it the most urgent humanitarian crisis in the world today. Two million people displaced, 22 million people in need of assistance, eight million at risk of famine right now, and the situation is worsening now. You imagine the weeping that's going on in that part of the world right now this morning? It's not just over there, it's right here on the streets of Birmingham. I'm driving down 280 this Friday afternoon, it's 3.15, I looked at my clock after this happened, I'm driving down 280 on Friday afternoon, I'm trying to change lanes and go left, so I put on my blinker and I look in my side view mirror and I see a woman in, a, in an SUV and she backs off and lets me in and I come in and when I go to say thank you and I look in my rear view mirror, I see she's crying like uncontrollably crying. And because of the, the holiday traffic, we just bumped along, you know, stopping and going, and I just saw for the next 10 minutes as we moved down 280 together, I just watched this woman cry. I'm quietly praying for her, and I, I turn off left, and then she just keeps going, and the question is burning in my mind that I wish I could have asked her is, what happened to you? What happened? Are you living in this world long enough and you're going to feel this question rising? Sometimes you'll feel it acutely. Sometimes you'll feel it like a dull ache that never goes away and the question is something like this. When will it end? When is enough enough? Who can stop the sadness, the the grief that has dogged our existence since Genesis chapter three, since the fall of Adam and Eve, will it ever let up? And friends, Jesus enters this text exactly at the breaking point of hopelessness. John is weeping 
and weeping. Look at verse four. I wept and wept because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or even to look in it. Then, (laughs) that's the best word in this text, then one of the elders said to me, do not weep, look, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. He's able to open the scroll and it's seven Seals, friends, someone is coming who will bring Satan to an end, sin to an end, suffering to an end. Jesus Christ will come for all those who have trusted in him and in his cross. He will wipe away all of our tears. That is the blessed hope that has animated the worship of God's people now for 2,000 years running. We've had this unshakable hope at the bottom of all our pain, this unshakable hope. All the pain that we've known in this fallen world will be outweighed by joy. Joy will outrun our pain in the end. A joy that's so full that it leads all who are in Christ to do the same thing in this text, which leads to our final truth. A sovereign God, a sad world, and a song of worship. A song of worship. In in Revelation 5, there's this glorious vision of a glorious future, but it's sealed up in a scroll that can't be broken, right? Inside that scroll is a world with no weeping. Inside that scroll is a world scrubbed of evil and sickness and death, but the question is, who's going to pay for it? Or we don't deserve that world. Who's going to buy that kind of world for us? Who has the power to bring that about, to throw the last latch? Who has the heft, who has the gravitas to actually bring a new creation down? And here coming into the text is a lamb that looks like a lion or a lion that looks like a lamb, one or the other, but you see both of these elements of strength and suffering. And he is the one who is able, this one who bears the marks of suffering. That's, that's the lamb image. He bears the marks of suffering. He's standing, but he's slain. There's something about him that tells you he was slaughtered. He was slain for us. And yet he carries himself with an air of kings, with the deportment of royalty. He's a lion, verse 7. And then he went, I love these words, look at verse 7. He went and took the scroll out of the right hand of the one seated on the throne. The son takes the scroll from the father. (laughs) This is, look, this is either the height of audacity or the definition of awesome. There's someone who has the heft, who has the bearing to walk up to the sovereign almighty father and say, give me the scroll. Jesus Christ alone is authorized. He alone is authorized to say enough to the pain of this world, the suffering, the sin that we've known in this world. He can say as we sing the carol this time of year, no more let sin and sorrows grow. It ends now, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Jesus says enough, he says enough to sin when he opens these scrolls, enough to the grave, enough to death, enough to cancer, enough to Satan's lies and accusations in your ear, you've been hearing them for years. He's gonna say enough. 
this glorious news, the one who bought us with his blood is the very one who will wipe away every tear. You think about the truth of this moment when we see him in his glory, when he brings in and ushers in the new heavens and the new earth and one glimpse of his beauty will drive away a thousand sorrows that vexed us in this world. Now, I read this passage, I've been living in it all week, and the word that just sticks out in my mind is the one we began with. You ever feel wonder? You ever feel just amazed, speechless? Do you feel that? Or is Advent so familiar that it no longer dazzles us? I want to show you something that for me is just a little window into childlike wonder. So if you watch this with me. When was the last time a concert left you saying, wow? It happened pretty recently for one young fellow, and Steve Hartman has his story. They are some of the best classical musicians in the country. But at one recent performance by the Handel and Haydn Society in Boston, the most memorable moment didn't come from anyone on stage at Symphony Hall. It came from the audience right at the very end of Mozart's Masonic funeral music. Listen. Did you hear that? Someone yelled, wow, and it resonated, not just in this hall, but throughout the classical music community. It was just such a departure from typical audience protocol, which is why the president of the Handel and Haydn Society was absolutely thrilled. I was like, that's fantastic. This is David Sneed. And also there's a sense of wonder in that wow. I mean, you could really hear on the tape, he was like, this was amazing. David was so smitten by the outburst, as was the audience, that he decided to try to find the voice responsible. Like, who was that? Because he really touched my life in a way that I'll never forget. This reminds me a little bit of Cinderella. You're trying to find somebody who was at the ball, but you had no way of finding them. <laughs> so they didn't have email back then, huh? You wrote to everybody in the audience. Wrote to everybody in the audience. Yeah, yeah. And eventually, that email found its way to concert goer Stephen Matten. We did dash out like, like we were turning into pumpkins. So. Stephen was there with his nine-year-old grandson, Ronan. Ronan is the one who shouted, wow, which surprised Stephen more than anyone because he just doesn't do that. You know, usually he's in a world by himself. Ronan, what do you see? Ronan is autistic and considered nonverbal. But clearly, music may be a wormhole into his heart and mind. As a thank you, David arranged for a private cello performance for Ronan. But Ronan's family says all thanks should go to David and the Handel and Haydn musicians who made that moment possible. They say just hearing Ronan's reaction after being told for years he might never engage. What more can you say but thank you and wow. I love that. He, he barely spoke, and somehow he found just the right word for the occasion. And it was just simply, wow. A childlike wonder. 
Friend, Revelation 5, it pulls out all the stops. This is, this is, if you will, this is God's orchestra tuning for his magnum opus. This is, everything is here. And as Jesus, our Redeemer, comes center stage, all of heaven responds. And what does heaven say? Worthy. There's just this surge heard throughout the new creation, the four corners of the world. You hear, worthy are you. You were slain. You bought us. You have honor and riches and power and glory. It's, it's all yours. This is heaven's reflexive response to what they've seen. It's just, wow. Power is yours. Wisdom and strength and glory and blessing are yours. And the music hits this triple forte moment in verse 13. Look at it. I heard every creature in heaven, all the instruments are pumping, on earth, under the earth, on the sea, everything in them, say, blessing and honor and glory and power be to the one. <laughs> Seated on the throne and to the Lamb, Forever and ever. You know what, what I love about that but didn't expect about that story is when the music leaves the concert hall and goes home with Ronan. Isn't that just a sweet little extra thing, right? You ask the question, you think about this, where we are in the year as a church. Why are we so passionate about global missions? Because we want the world to hear God's magnum opus in Christ. We want the world to hear the music of redemption. We heard it, and we want our wow to be heard around the world. We want that wow to move in the direction of people who have not yet heard the music. Why don't we take a special offering? We're going to do that in just a moment, the global offering. Why don't we do this every week in the month of December, throughout the year, but with emphasis all throughout the month of December for our global offering because in this text, Jesus, I hope you saw it, gathers every tribe and language and people and nation. In other words, when the curtain opens, every nation is supposed to be seated there. And that's the privilege that we have is to go tell the nations, we've got invites. Right? We've got a way into a stadium filled with undeserving, countless undeserving sinners. None of us should be there, but we got tickets. We got invites, and they're for you. We got space for you. Let's worship him together. Look, for us, we give to the global offering because it's not okay for us that approximately two billion people in the world have never heard the music. God's magnum opus has never rung in their ears. They've never said, wow, the way we have. They don't know he's the one mediator because the one mission hasn't reached them yet. That's why all month we've been talking about one mediator, one mission, one mediator, one mission. If our eyes are open to see the glory of the one mediator, we cannot help but pursue the one mission. Let me put that more simply. People who have seen the glory of Christ live for the mission of Christ. Friends, in a moment, we're going to have an opportunity to give to the global offering. And if you're new here, this is unfamiliar to you, 100% 
of what's given to the global offering goes out the door to the purpose of advancing the gospel among the nations with a particular focus on the nations that have not heard, people groups that have not heard. There's a special emphasis on those who have not seen yet the glory of Christ. I love this quote from a missionary to Africa from the 1800s, David Livingston. He said it so well. Listen to this. If a commission by an earthly king is considered an honor, how can a commission by a heavenly king be considered a sacrifice? Let me read that again. If a commission by an earthly king is considered an honor, how can a commission by a heavenly king be considered a sacrifice? Brooke Hills, our praying, our giving, our going is not a sacrifice. It is a privilege. It is the privilege of all privileges. The, the mission isn't guilt-driven. It's wow-driven. It's wonder-driven. 